Shut up and sit down. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Quiet Part Loud podcast. This is episode 136, and we had a guest due to, to be on the show today, but we had some scheduling conflicts, and we've pushed that show back a couple of weeks. So as we've done a number of kind of quote-unquote interview shows, conversations, that um, thank you for all the positive feedback that you guys have supplied with those uh, with those shows. It's been great and, and really encouraging that we're on the right track. But I thought, well, if we don't have a guest, that doesn't mean we can't jump on and do what we used to do and have a little one-to-one time and, you know, recap on what's been going on in the world since we last had a chance to discuss it. So I thought, well, let's jump on and do that. Um, so we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff today. We're going to talk about the continued spike of COVID cases in the U.S. and how that's being handled. We're going to talk about the U.K. and the reopening of bars, restaurants, gyms, and other things, and the impact that that's having. I want to talk about Kanye running for president and getting Elon Musk's temporary but immediate support um, for for that uh, endeavor. Uh, I want to talk about Unity 2020, the Brett Weinstein idea about re- purposing the political system and how we elect leaders uh, to political office, specifically in America. Um, But the first thing I wanted to talk about was something that was brought up on a show previously, and that was in relation to this lockdown. And one of the things I said was, if you don't use this opportunity to embed a new habit or skill behavior that moves you in a positive direction in your life, then you've ultimately wasted a tremendously unique and rare opportunity. When are you ever going to have the time to be, you know, locked in your house where you can effectively just focus on you? And I wonder would kind of just bring you up to speed on what I've been doing in that respect, because one of my intentions was to pick up the piano again and start, start really getting my skill level up on that. Over the lockdown, I've probably done that about 15 or 20 times. So not the adoption rate that I had intended when I started, but a decent effort, I guess. And I've picked up a few new songs or parts of songs, so that's great. But what I wanted to actually talk about was the health and fitness aspect of adjusting during lockdown. Because we had the announcement yesterday that gyms are going to be reopening this month. And I personally don't feel comfortable yet going back to the gym. Uh, I just don't have any faith in business owners to properly clean or prepare for, uh, you know, the operational side of reopening something that is a, you know, high footfall business. So one of the things that I've done during lockdown is adjusted my health and fitness routine. And specifically, after speaking with the Iron Wolf a few episodes ago, I've really rekindled my love of bodyweight exercises and high intensity interval training and circuits and things you can do anywhere with no equipment because you know we always say you need a gym membership you got to get to the gym you got to you know be around like-minded people but this has been a perfect opportunity to practice a new form of exercise in isolation 
And one of the things that I've actually done at the beginning of July is joined the Iron Wolf's burpee challenge for July. And effectively, the challenge is this. You commit to a certain amount of burpees every single day of the month, and then you go and do them. It's really, really simple. You hold yourself accountable. There's a community of folks on Instagram that are constantly posting these videos up. And I thought, great, this is, this is either going to show me how much I've missed this type of working out or how much I never want to do this kind of working out again. And it's absolutely been the former. So I'm 10 days in. I'm doing 100 burpees a day, which means I hit my 1,000 burpee mark this morning, and I feel phenomenal. I don't have the aches and pains that I used to have on a daily basis from weightlifting. Um, my mobility is getting better. My endurance is getting better. I feel great. I'm sleeping better. The whole thing, and we're 10 days in, has been an absolute revelation. Now, I didn't start doing burpees at the beginning of the month, but I've been ramping up to see where my capacity is. And my capacity is growing, as you would imagine, but this has been a phenomenal eye-opener for me because I really shied away from a lot of the cardio elements of exercise whilst I was focusing heavily on weights, weights, weights. And as a result of that, I've really damaged my shoulder. And my shoulder's been hurt for about three months. It's, it's, it's still not better, but removing all of the weights and just focusing on calisthenics and, and body weight exercises has really allowed me to listen to my body more. And I know you should do that when you lift weights and everything like that, but there's meathead tendencies can creep in when you're lifting weights, right? Go that extra, you know, go that extra kilo, you know, put that extra plate on. That's not the case with body weight exercises because it's just about reps and form breathing and focus and there's something very serene about that there's something very uh, what do you want to say it, it almost like puts you in a trance so when I'm doing 100 burpees by the time I get to about 50 I'm pouring with sweat because I like to keep a nice pace up as well I'm pouring with sweat my music's not on I, I have my headphones in but I like to record my workouts as well to watch my form and watch my pace and, and all of that and when you do that with an iPhone, it cuts your music from Spotify off. So even though I've got my headphones on in the video, there's actually no music playing, which is really, it's, it's really interesting because you go into your own head and you either, it, I, I guess it's kind of like meditation, right? That meditation of blocking out that noise. Because when you meditate, one of the hardest things people have when trying to practice meditation is they pay attention to their thoughts of day-to-day -day life and whatever creeps into their thoughts. And with meditation, you're, you're supposed to allow those thoughts to come in and then let them go. Don't hold on to them. And that's precisely what happens when you start to do these high rep circuits and these high rep exercises. So by the time I'm at 50 and I'm starting to sweat and I'm starting to pour and, you know, all I'm doing is counting my cadence, focusing on my form and my mechanics and not stopping. And there's something very meditative about that. Now, I'm not going to proselytize one way of working out over another. It's a completely subjective thing that is down to the individual. And we've spoken about adherence with a health, with a health and fitness routine in the past. And me telling you that I love burpees does nothing for you if you hate burpees and would never do more than three burpees in your life because you just can't stand them. All I'm saying is the perspective and the mindset change that said, 
you don't have to just do it one way. And you used to really love doing it this way. And for whatever reason, you've completely gone away from that. So it's just been nice to take that perspective, have a little bit of self-reflection. And as a result, I am shedding calories. I'm also really focused on my hydration. I got a new water bottle, not that you guys care, but I got a new water bottle. It's a, it is a 128 ounce water bottle, which for those of you that don't know ounces, that's about 3.8 liters. And if you don't know how to measure liters, just think of it as a shit ton of water. And I'm going about, I'm going through about a bottle and a half of this a day. So I would estimate that that's about six liters of water feeling great pissing all the time but feeling great so I just wanted to put that out there because you don't have to be rigid in your thinking be flexible in your thinking be open to new ideas and be open to trying things out even if you might not like them at first because let me tell you something doing a hundred burpees sucks right in terms of actually doing a hundred burpees and the thought of doing that sucks but the guy that I got the inspiration from and the guy who's running this challenge, the Iron Wolf, Art Schwarzberg, who was on the show a few episodes back. And if you haven't listened to that, go and check that out because he is a super motivational person and he has really inspired me and I think really changed the way I look at fitness going forward. Um, but I was inspired by him on this challenge and it just, it's been an eye-opening experience and I really, really like it. And the way I was thinking about fitness before was pack on muscle, lift more weights, eat more, pack on, you know, not just eat more, but eat smart when you're eating more. Um, but that doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody's built to consume a ton of calories and to keep pushing weights and, and, and just, you know, trying to bulk up and, you know, you can do it, you can do it, but it's not for everybody. So you got to find the stuff that you really love because if you find that, then you find something that you can do consistently. And as we've talked about before, the only thing that matters with any skill development or change of behavior is consistency. You have to do it over and over and over again, right? There is a quote by Aristotle that says something along the lines of excellence is... Uh, excellence is I don't fucking know it says excellence is not basically it says excellence is not something you do once it's something that you do as a habit so it's not a personality trait it's a habit or a behavior or some shit like that good thing I'm not a philosopher because I can't be concise like that I've got the quote somewhere it's a really good quote and it's really fucking applicable and you take my word for it <laughs> um, but the point that underlines that is consistency do something over and over again there is no magic pill to get yourself from being unhealthy to healthy. It is down to determination, hard work, focus, and consistency. It's a four-part program. If you've got those and you know what you want to do, you will go and get it and you will achieve it. It's really, really that simple. You know, um, I, I relate it to podcasts, the podcast space, because I read a report that says um, seven out of eight podcasts that get started don't go more than five episodes and then they're gone. So I'm like, you know, when I get discouraged because maybe my numbers aren't as high as I would like them to be or we don't, we don't grow as fast as I would like to be, I just have to put that perspective back front and center to say, you're 130 plus episodes in, just keep going. 
Joe Rogan's at 1,500 episodes. You think he got to where he is signing a $100 million Spotify deal by episode 135? No. He was still doing it in a bedroom off a laptop, off a webcam back then. So we all have the journey. And it's the ones that continue the journey are persistent in their pursuit of that goal that will ultimately achieve it. And the people that don't, won't. And it's really that simple. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there in terms of my thinking and some of the things that I've done uh, that have really helped me anchor myself in some normality throughout this pandemic. Because these days can get away from you. And these weeks can just float by and melt into one another. And you're just kind of, you're kind of just existing. But if, again, something we've talked about before, if you anchor your days in habits and routines, you will find that this could be one of the most productive times you will ever have in your life. Because this is totally unique, this COVID situation. Yes, we've had SARS. Yes, we've had MERS. Yes, we've had uh, you know swine flu and things like that. But nothing that broke out to this degree. Now, you can listen to whatever podcasters or whatever quote-unquote experts you like. But the truth of the matter is they know very, very little even now about what is going on with COVID. Okay? And this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about today. Because America... I mean, America has not even controlled the first wave of this pandemic. And now, because they're such lazy, unfocused, ignorant assholes, they have not taken the precautions to protect themselves. And they are just, they said basically two weeks will shut down. Let's see what happens. And if not, we're, we're you know, we're, we're going back to work. We're opening everything back up. It was a little longer than that, but you know what I'm saying. They have no patience. No patience whatsoever. Their their need for immediate satiation or gratification is tantamount to everything else. You know, or it's 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 more it's more important than anything else. It's I want it now. I want it now. And you're stopping me from getting my hair dyed, so I have to go outside. I mean, this shit is crazy. And of course, the states that opened up soonest are now seeing the biggest increases in resurgent spike cases, right? In resurgency of cases. And I think to myself, no shit. What did you think was going to happen? I look at these podcasters like Brian and and Brendan who do the, the fighter and the kid. And, you know, they were so indignant about what this virus was. So they decided to go out on a comedy tour. They went to Texas and started doing shows for hundreds of hundreds of people. Well, guess who both have COVID now? Guess who both have to be quarantined now? I mean, could you be any more ignorant and self-absorbed when you don't even give it a passing thought that this might be more serious than you know? And that's why you can't take advice from people, medical advice from anybody other than scientists and doctors. Because... Anybody that wants to jump to conclusions about something that they don't, they don't know anything about is not somebody to be listened to as an authority. What have I been saying on this show 
since this thing even reared its head. And before, well before we were in lockdown, I was telling you, this is a bad thing. We need to be ultimately prepared for this. And we need to go hard in the paint immediately. I was telling my colleagues at work, I am not comfortable coming in on public transport anymore. I'm not comfortable being in an office with dead air and 300 people. I don't, I wrote a letter about it. And I just think, why not err on the side of caution? Do I like being locked in the house without being able to go and sit at a pub with my friends or go to a movie theater or go to a show or whatever? Do I miss that? Of course I do. But is it worth getting sick over? For a virus that I don't know, you know, the likelihood of me getting properly, you know, afflicted by it is unlikely. But do I want to take the chance? You know, it's like sticking a bullet in a revolver and playing Russian roulette with it. It's like, yeah, there's five empty spaces, but one of those chambers has a fucking bullet in it and it could end your life. It's a 20% chance. COVID is obviously a lot less than that, but do you want to play that lottery? Because I don't. Hence why I'm not going back to the gym. And I think the absolute fumbling and mishandling of this situation globally has really shined a light on how incompetent our leaders, our systems, and our institutions are. And we're going to talk about that. So, so let's start in America because they haven't even addressed the initial problem with this lock, with this uh, pandemic, with this COVID. Um, not taking it seriously, obviously, is the first mistake. And when you have a leadership in the U.S. that is so ignorant to anything scientific anything international how are you expected to deal with a problem that is of a scale that COVID is especially over there because they currently have about one third of all of the cases reported globally they are by far dealing with the biggest death rate and you have a leader in that country who is a, re- a reality TV star, nothing more. His intelligence backs that up. His actions back that up. Who says, oh, well, first of all, as soon as it gets warm, this thing's going to disappear. That was mistake number one. Mistake number two was not doing anything about it. He says, oh, well, I locked down flights from China, you know, he calls it Kung Flu, like that's helpful. The China virus, this is a China virus, like these are helpful, you know, additions to the conversation from the top. Then things start spreading like wildfire and they don't have any treatment for this and they don't know how to lock down States and they don't want to lock down states because the only metric of success that Trump gives a shit about is the Wall Street metrics. How's the stock market doing? When America goes to 20 plus percent in unemployment after everything does get locked down, 
His only metric of success is, is, is the Wall Street numbers. And anybody with half a brain knows you do not track success by the stock market because it is a totally convoluted system that is corrupt and run by, you know, a handful of organizations that operate effectively with impunity. So when you've got somebody who doesn't take the issue seriously, doesn't listen to the medical advice given to him by his advisors, and then comes up with some harebrained idea to shine light inside the body or inject yourself with bleach or take, uh, what was it, hydroxychloroquine, I think the name was, you know, that in studies was shown to produce high numbers of heart attacks in those that took it. You know, we were, oh, well, we've got plenty of ventilators. Yeah, well, we know that ventilators effectively stop the lungs from working on their own and therefore increase dramatically the rate of deaths from this disease when you put people on ventilators. From there, it continues. Oh, we're going to open everything up by Easter. We're going to open everything up by June. Let's let's just crack on and get things open. And as I said before, the states that have done that have shown dramatic increases to the level that they were at the height before the lockdown happened. They are now surpassing that in daily cases in some states. And they're just not doing anything about it. You mix that in with the George Floyd situation, the Black Lives Matter protests, and you just have a recipe for disaster. But this boils down to a leadership question because if you don't have the if you don't have your leadership right, how are you expect to enact, enact any policy that could stem the tide or, you know, kind of curb the trend? Of what this virus is doing but America just doesn't seem like it cares as I said before these podcasters are out there going well we'll just we'll just deal with it it's not gonna affect me now they both got it and they realize oh they were super ignorant about it super um, kind of you know just blase about the whole thing just brushing it off to the side like it's just a, a little sniffle when one of them now has been feeling terrible for over three weeks. And because of their ignorance, have most likely infected other people and contributed to the continued rise of the cases of COVID rather than being, I don't know, a little reserved with your comments? And how about saying, I don't know? How about saying, I don't know? Let's wait and see. But that is not in the American DNA. And they are suffering accordingly. And it's just really sad to see. What pisses me off even more is that we as a country in the UK have not stopped flights coming from that country. Because they were quick. America, right? After they realized what a shitstorm they were actually dealing with, then they were like, oh, no flights from here, no flights from there, no flights from anywhere. 
We haven't done that in the UK. And we're one of the best place. We're, we're almost best placed to deal with this. I would say more so than any other country other than say other island nations, New Zealand, Australia, etc., Japan. And New Zealand dealt with it great. Why? Because they took action immediately. If you don't take action immediately and go over the point of the bare minimum, right? You got to do the most you can straight away. If you look back and you've done too much, you say, sorry, we were taking precautions for your health. But to do nothing says we don't care about your health. We're not taking that as our first priority. And that's exactly what you're seeing in the UK because the UK government has has fumbled this. It's almost on par with America how incompetent these idiots are. And this goes, again, from the top down. Boris Johnson, right? We took no measures to lock this thing down straight away. Never. We didn't make... It was, it was, what, a month and a half, two months before we imposed any sort of restrictions on movement or containing this thing in a meaningful way? Because let's not forget, the buzzword here was herd immunity, right? They were, they were convinced, well, if everybody gets it, we'll deal with some fatalities. Worst case scenario, you know, we're looking at 20,000 deaths, which is not as bad as a bad flu season. But then everybody's going to have antibodies, the problem is you make a claim like that and people start to take your word for it when you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Because at that point in time, there were no, there was no evidence that getting it gave you the antibodies. That was a theory based on other infections, on other viruses. But they said, nah, don't worry about it. You don't need to wear face masks. I mean, they told us we didn't need to wear face masks up until about, what, three and a half weeks ago? Excuse me if I, my timeline is slightly off here. But it was about three and a half weeks ago where they were like, oh, you know what? Now you should probably be wearing masks everywhere you go. You don't have to wear them outside, but as soon as you go in anywhere or travel anywhere, public transport, restaurants, well, you can't go to restaurants because they're closed, but if you have to go to work, you got to wear a face mask. It's now mandatory. This is three weeks ago. This shit hit us in January, and we knew about it in November. It's disgraceful, the kind of mishandling of this situation. And running through some of those, you know, for lack of a better word, fuck-ups, just shows you how incompetent a government system we have in place and how badly, how badly suited these folks are for the position and what it requires. Because... You don't measure someone by their behavior at the best of times. You measure a person's character and competency during the hardest times. How do they maintain? What's their integrity level? What is their resolve? What is their planning and strategy? How proactive are they? How comprehensive is their thinking? And on all of the points I just mentioned, we saw absolutely nothing from all of these people. Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson, the education secretary, don't even know what his name is, Dominic Robb, the foreign secretary. These guys are a joke. Preeti Patel, garbage. Like, I'm so sick and tired 
of not saying anything. And, and I say I've never said anything, but I've ranted and raved about the government plenty of times. But I'm getting really sick of biting my tongue in terms of how I talk about them. Because they're just people. And people are fallible. Right? People make mistakes. That's fine. The problem I've got with these assholes is that they have no, they have no moral compass to speak of. And they have such little integrity for us and for themselves that they can't even admit when they're wrong because the only thing they give a shit about is the next election cycle and not being fired and towing the company line. And it's gross. It's gross to watch because they've gone from one fuck up to another fuck up. They've mishandled every single element of this. And I want to run through some of it because it's relevant and we should be concerned because like what's going on in America with the Black Lives Matter movements, I have always been a proponent of speaking with your vote and speaking with your cash. If you don't like the way an organization runs something, remove your finances from that business. Don't put your commerce into a business that you don't agree with. Try staying off Amazon for a minute. You know what I'm saying? Jeff Bezos added 15 to 20 billion dollars to his net worth during this pandemic he literally got richer off of other people's suffering you want to prop this king up you got to speak with your votes you got to speak with your commerce that is the only meaningful way so as they're trying to talk about doing in America specifically in Atlanta with the Black Lives Matters protests and how you actually change systems is by talking with your vote and talking with your money. So we need to talk with our votes and tell these politicians how pissed off we are, how incompetent we think they are. Because they're not beholden to you at all. You are effect, you're effectively a product for them to manipulate and use. And they will lie to you. They will tell you all kinds of shit that you want to hear. None of it which will manifest into any actionable results. So why should we treat them with any level of respect if they can't even do the bare minimum for us during one of the most dangerous, hard-hitting crises we've seen in our entire lives? We have never seen. The economic downturn of this is worse than 2008. We're talking Great Depression times. And I know people are still working. And I know the shops are still open. But you think this is over? You're crazy. You're crazy. And if we think that the government is going to look out for us in any way, shape, or form, if this comes back again, you're again out of your mind. Because let's break it down a little bit. How did they look after you this time? They were late with the advice because we know now if the lockdown was imposed even one week earlier, the death rate could have been halved. So instead of, what are we at now, 50 odd thousand, probably more like 75 in all cases, we could have halved that. That means Thirty to 40,000 families wouldn't be grieving for the loss of a loved one who died from a cold that we just weren't prepared for. We didn't have the stockpile of PPE equipment. We didn't have the logistical um, mechanism and plans in place 
to deal with a lockdown or testing or anything. You know why they did the lockdown? So they didn't fuck over the NHS and put that into complete disrepair. Right? We're, again, we're hearing all this shit about ventilators, ventilators. We need ventilators. We need ventilators. They're trying to stick everybody on ventilators. Well, a ventilator does the breathing for you. And if you are not exercising a muscle, you lose it because it atrophies. So if you put somebody on a ventilator, when what they need to do is be trying to use their lungs as much as possible, you take that muscle capacity away from the lungs and it fails to work at all. And that's why something like 80% of people who have been put on ventilators are dead. It's no joke. So if we would have locked down a week earlier, we could have had the deaths. So there's one massive fuck up. Why? Because they failed to take action. Why? Because they were not prepared at all to deal with this crisis. Why? Because they don't have the fortitude. They don't have the stuff. You know what I'm saying? You know when a person's got the stuff, you put through, you, you, you know, you'd ride with that person. That person's got their shit together and you can tell just by hearing them speak. But these idiots are useless unless they have pre-prepared statements, talking points that they can come back to and regurgitate over and over again. There's no critical thinking here. There's no proactive planning here. This was a massive public health and economic failing from the jump. I'm a salesperson that does a podcast in part in my in my spare time, and I knew this thing was going to be devastating if we didn't lock it down straight away. Look at the countries that did. New Zealand, South Korea, Germany. They're nowhere near dealing with the type of stuff that we're dealing with here. So a lockdown could have solved this problem. Next, we'll talk about the economics and how they've injected billions, big percentages of our GDP into the economy, right? As relief and wage support and everything like that and bailouts and loans. And where that went, because it didn't go to the people that needed it most. So one of the, one of the biggest mishandlings during this whole period of time has been the financial aspect of it. It has been the enormity of the bailout and the allocation of the funds within that bailout. Now, don't get me wrong, the furlough scheme, the wage protection scheme, has been phenomenal. It's been fantastic and has allowed a lot of companies to maintain a very high level of staff without having to worry about making redundancies and causing even more people to lose their job. The problem that I have with how the financial aspect of this pandemic has been handled is really about the bailout overall because the bailout was to the tune originally of about 350 billion pounds which I believe is about 6% of our GDP. Now, if that was to take care of those most vulnerable and the money got into the hands of the people that needed it the most, I probably wouldn't be saying anything right now. But when I hear that companies like EasyJet, 
got 600 million pounds as a bailout or Chanel got 500 million pounds. British railroads have received, I think, three and a half billion pounds. When you've got such enormous sums of money going to multinational firms and massive corporations that have organized their businesses so badly that they're, they can't even operate on their own funds for three months, I don't want those companies around. Because the truth of the matter is, something else will replace them. Why do we need to give EasyJet 600 million quid to run its sardine can flights across Europe and wherever else they go? If they've mismanaged their finances to the point where if three months is going to put them out of business, let them. Chanel, a perfume company, 500 million pounds of taxpayer money because that's what this is. This 350 billion, 400 billion pound bailout is not the government or the Bank of England saying, here you go, guys, you're welcome, happy to help. That money has to be paid back. And guess who pays back that money? We pay back that money. So why do we, A, not have a more uh, prominent seat at the table, let's say? Why do we not have a say on how that money gets allocated? And how is it that when you've got owners of these companies that are billionaires, they're not using their own funds to bail out their company? We're bailing them out, like we did in 2008, but this is to a much greater tune. This is a much more significant bailout. When I know that the owner, the CEO, or whoever, the chairman of Chanel, is worth, is it 50 billion? That person shouldn't get a penny. When I find out, you know, in America, their idea of a financial bailout for the citizens was to provide them a one-off check for $1,200, but you've got people like Kanye West and, you know, Richard Branson applying for these massive, massive loans, we've got a big problem because it's not the people receiving these enormous sums of money that are going to pay this money back. It's going to be us, and it's going to be us paying it back through things like increased taxes, increased service charges, increased prices on goods and services and industry and all of these other things. So if you think that you're going to continue to get cheap easy jet flights or anything is going to be reduced to make it less burdensome on your pocket, you're out of your mind. We're paying this back, and we haven't even scratched the surface on the damage that this thing is doing. Because if they don't handle it correctly, as we move forward, because there's no doubt that they've screwed this whole thing up anyhow, what this is going to do is put us in a recessive place economically for a long time, like five years, seven years, ten years, before we recover from this. But their first idea was to throw all of this money out and make it sound like it was going to be this big support scheme for the most downtrodden, vulnerable people in this country. 
The councils around this country had billions funneled into it. Do you think we got one letter to say that our council tax payment would be deferred? Do you think that there's going to be any cleaner streets or infrastructure improvements? That money is gone. They're saying that they've already spent it, and I want to know what they spent it on. There needs to be an audit for all of this money that's gone to these councils and to these massive organizations to be held accountable for what they did with that money because it's our money. We're the ones that are responsible for paying that money back. We should have a say in where that money went. And the fact that people like freelancers or business owners that don't necessarily have a premise uh, in which they do business. So, for instance, people who run businesses from home or who are gig freelance people, they got nothing. They were told to go on unemployment. So somebody who was making, you know, a few thousand pounds a month, let's say, after taxes on their small independent business, local business, was reduced to getting about 75 pounds a week. When you've got EasyJet and Chanel and British Railroads taking billions out of this stimulus package without any accountability, it's disgraceful and it just shows, again, where the government's priorities actually reside as opposed to where they should reside. And this is why we have to talk with things like our money and our votes. Because if you don't, you're effectively saying, it's okay that you fucked me like this. I don't mind. You did it to me 10 years ago. You're doing it to me again. And we'll just eat it and deal with it because we have no recourse. My advice would be to stop putting your money into those companies who have received massive amounts of money from us, from the government, and provide no accountability when they have CEOs running these companies who are making multi-million pound bonuses every single year and have had to struggle nothing like the rest of us have during this period of time. It's disgraceful. So we've got the biggest bailout in history, but we've still got what, 7 million people claiming unemployment? I mean, that's not even close to what America has, right? America's got something like 35 million, and then they start to make it seem like a good news story when 4 million people get their jobs back. That's not a good news story. You don't gain those. You're not gaining those jobs. You're getting those jobs back. It's not a gain. It's a makeup. You're trying to make up the deficit that was caused by this pandemic and by the mishandling of how this pandemic should be resolved and controlled. They say, I was talking earlier about how they were saying, oh, well, you don't need to wear masks. You don't need to wear masks. They're not mandatory, right? They're not, they're not even advisable because we don't have any scientific evidence that they stop the spread of the virus. Like that made sense to anybody. You put anything over your mouth that isn't completely porous and you're going to stop some of that transfer, if not all of it, you will stop some of it. But they told us categorically, don't worry about masks. You don't need them. Until about three and a half weeks ago, when they said, you know what? Not only do we encourage you to use them, but in many situations, they are now mandatory to be used. Well, why would they have such a flip in their opinion and guidance on a safety mask? 
they're saying we don't have enough PPE. You know, the nurses need the PPE and the doctors need the PPE, but you guys don't need to worry about it. So why are the people on the front lines so desperate for it, but you're telling us we don't have to worry about it? Well, the simple fact of the matter is, is because they didn't have any stock. So they were lying to us about the dangers of this disease and how preventative measures could successfully curb the transmission of this disease. They lied to us about those things because they didn't have enough masks for the doctors and for the nurses. And don't get me wrong, you have to prioritize frontline workers, the people who are doing the work 16 hours a day, you know, sweating and slaving in ungodly conditions to try to save lives. You have to give them priority for sure. But if you had any shred of integrity, you would come out and you would fucking say that. Because if you say we don't have enough equipment, it needs to be given to the healthcare workers first because they're frontline and we have to protect as many of them as possible because if we don't, our national health service will crash because we already have a shortage of doctors. And as soon as we can order more, the next priority will trickle down into the citizens. But for now, this is why we need you to be in your house locked down categorically. Don't tell us masks don't work. That's horseshit. And everybody knew it was horseshit. It was only weeks later that the actual lie came out. I mean, that Anthony Fauci guy in America, he said it in an interview. But we can't even admit our mistakes. Our politicians will never own up to anything. Think back to the beginning of this thing. Boris Johnson stood on the podium doing one of his stupid daily briefings talking about, well, I, uh, I went to the COVID ward and I shook everybody's hand and I'm fine. Month later, he's out for a month because he's got COVID. Some say he's on death's door because of it. And during the peak of this problem, our prime minister was laid up in a hospital bed because he was too ignorant to even look at the scientific evidence and was trying to grandstand to keep what, us calm? What keeps people calm is transparency and honesty. Everybody thinks if you tell people something, they're going to freak out and it's going to be chaos in the streets. What's chaos in the streets is when you fucking lie to people and they find out about it and then they understand that you have none of their interests in mind. The next lie that they told us was about asymptomatic transmission, right? They're saying, oh, asymptomatic, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if you're asymptomatic, then you've effectively got the invisible killer, right? Again, not being transparent with us, jumping ahead of any scientific evidence, because it was only a couple of weeks later that they said, oh, well, we, we actually don't think that asymptomatic people transmit this disease even a fraction of what symptomatic people transmit this disease like so they give us this stuff they don't apologize for lying they're not accountable to the facts and then they just change their mind on a whim to go with whatever policy and procedure that they're trying to put in place and then they talk about opening up again when they don't have a clue about the timeline for a vaccine or the rate of you know, continual spreading either by asymptomatic people or people in general who don't socially distance. They say, we got to open things back up. We got to open things back up. So they open up retail. 
they open up retail. Now they open up, you know, the pubs and, and, and the leisure centers and, and things like this. But we don't have schools open? How can we not have children getting an education if what you're telling us about the asymptomatic people not being able to spread it, children being less infected with this disease on the whole, but yet you're not willing to put them back into school and the mental health problems will only be felt from this far down the road because it's a stress on families. It's a, it's a stress on parents who need to go out and earn a living for the reasons I stated before because a lot of them are not being looked after appropriately because the funds are being channeled to these massive corporations so the stress on family life is being evidenced by the rise in domestic abuse the rise in alcoholism the rise in anxiety and depression loneliness disconnection we're social creatures children most importantly through the developmental stages of their life but we get nothing in terms of any sort of guidance from the health secretary, from the education secretary, or from the prime minister about something concrete. We'll open pubs up. We'll open pubs up. But we're not going to open schools up. Are you fucking crazy? Who are you talking to? And guess what? Now they've opened pubs up and we get a report today that says, oh, well, guess what? Here's the boroughs and the areas in England that are seeing massive spikes in COVID cases after lockdown. This thing does not go away until we have a vaccine for it. It is as simple as that. So can you close down the country and the economy indefinitely? Of course not. Of course not. And the fact that this thing was mishandled on step one means that anything we do now is not going to be as effective as it could have been. And that's my fucking problem overall is that these guys bullshit and lie. And if they just came straight out and took some actually definitive action rather than twiddling their thumbs and having these COBRA meetings where they put together these stupid graphs, maybe we wouldn't be in the position that we're in. Because the first thing I said is lock this country down, get everybody in their homes and start testing people. And if we would have done that, we would have been in a far better position than we are now. Instead of thinking that herd immunity, giving everybody the infection, let's see who dies from it. And whoever's left, well, good to go. What kind of strategy is that? If I was that incompetent in my job, not only would I be, I'd expect to be fired. Because in my opinion, that is gross misconduct in terms of your responsibility in that role. So they open up pubs and they say, oh, well, you know what? People are, people will social distance. We have every confidence in the British public to social distance. Have you seen what's going on in America? Have you seen what happened in Soho the day they opened the pubs up? Soho in London. It looked like Notting Hill Carnival. You could not walk down that area of London around the Soho pubs you couldn't walk it was literally shoulder to shoulder and now we're seeing spikes some boroughs in London 200% increase this week alone there's a place in England called Southampton for anybody that's listening that's not from the UK there's a place in England called uh, Southampton it's down south obviously as it says on the tin 
they've seen a 2,000% increase. No, sorry, I tell a lie. A 1,187.5% increase in cases in the last week. There's boroughs that are within a mile of me that are seeing a 170% increase, 200% increase. So what's going to happen next? They're going to re-lock down all of these things? Because I think people are going to turn around and say, go fuck yourself. And they're going to they're gonna basically do what they're doing in America. And we're going to see a second peak. Luckily, we had a lockdown period where some of this stuff could be managed. But ultimately, as I just said, unless you have a vaccine that gets rid of this, you're always going to be in danger of it resurfacing and spiking again. Now, we've had some really shitty weather in London over the past few days. It's been raining. You see, you know, <clears throat> that kind of, oh, am I going to get a cold? You know, with the change, you know, going from hot to cold, that's going to compromise my immune system. Am I going to be even more careful? Am I continuing to wash my hands? People are fed up with things. What do you think is going to happen? We're going to see a resurgence in this thing. And if we don't take some proper action now, it's going to get bad like it was before. Now, people are potentially less scared of it because they know the death rate is very, very low. But that only goes towards people's indignation about how they protect themselves and others if we do see a second spike. And what I mean by that is, take me for example. I'm a relatively healthy person. I exercise a lot. I don't fear COVID generally because of the stats that I'm reading. But that doesn't matter. If I get it and I'm around somebody who is dealing with an underlying condition or maybe doesn't have the health and immune system that I have, then I'm putting them in trouble. I'm putting them in danger. And they're not going to know that because if I'm asymptomatic, which is probably likely if I had it, they wouldn't know there was anything wrong. So they wouldn't know to protect themselves from me if they didn't already take those precautions on themselves just as a matter of course. And now they get it. And it takes two weeks for this thing to manifest its results and its symptoms. So how many people do they spread it to? They're saying now that the infection rate in England is 6.7 per, per 100,000. So seven people in every 100,000 have it. And the government's telling us the R rating is still below one, they continue to lie to us. And now we're effectively fending for ourselves. So, why should we listen to them full stop when the guidance has been so parsed out to fit their narrative or whatever their objectives are but then we see them, the government themselves, high-level officials, breaking all the rules they tell us we must absolutely adhere to or we will face fines and arrests and detention. But then you've got the prime minister's advisor taking a road trip just because he fancies it and then gives us some bullshit excuse that we're supposed to swallow and, and take. And, and, when, and when Boris says that the matter's closed, then the matter's closed. 
But then we see these idiots in the House of Parliament patting each other on the back, snuggling up to the shoulders, having a quick chat. It's like, who do you think we are? They're telling us not to gather, but to get back to work, but not to use public transport. And if you do, then social distance. It's like none of these idiots has ever been on a subway before or on a public bus that I would say a good 75 to 80% of Londoners use at some point in time during their week. If you've taken ever a ride on the London Underground, one thing you will understand is that social distancing is an absolute impossibility. Not only that, but those train carriages might, might as well be incubators. And I said this at the beginning of this whole pandemic. I'm not going on public transport. Why? Because I don't trust people's general hygiene. And if you go to the grocery store now, which I do very irregularly and infrequently, you'll see that probably two out of 10 people have a mask on. Other than that, people are just like, fuck it. Fuck it. But they give us all of these mixed messages and then they expect us to what? Decipher them? I mean, when Dominic Cummings did that road trip debacle, their defense was, well, it depends how you interpret the rules. So you know what people did? They said, fuck the rules. We're going back outside. I'm not being locked in my house anymore. And now you're seeing what's happening as a result of that. This is before we even touch on the care home issue and how mishandled that was and still is. The fact that you could see elderly family members separated from their families and in some cases, many cases, die alone, not being able to have their family member hold their hand when they pass. There was a story, I think he was 13 or 11, 11-year-old boy who died from COVID, died in isolation. Parents weren't allowed to touch him because of the infection. Imagine that. The psychological, irreparable damage that that does to families, to people, which exacerbates the mental health crisis we've already got in this country that's been, you know, amplified by this pandemic. Then you throw salt in the wounds when people are going through their last days to say, you know what? We can't actually help you there. Social distancing. And then one of these pricks gets in their car and goes for a drive for what? To figure out child care? You fucking kidding me? It's terrible what they've done in care homes. And I think they attribute 50% of all the deaths to the care homes. It's like they were purposely trying to wipe out old people or something. So they don't have to worry about pensions anymore or something. I don't know. Conspiracy theorists in me gets going, you know? But their big solution, whew, big solution to solve all of this, the track and the trace. We got an app. They said we got an app. It's going to be rolled out. It's going to be ready to go. It's going to work amazing. We can't wait. This is going to be our this is going to be our saving grace. We're going to know everybody that's got COVID. We're going to know who they've been in contact with. We're going to be able to put lockdown specific measures in place where necessary, and we're good to go. Instead, true to form, with everything else that this government does, it wasn't ready. 
The rollout on the Isle of Wight was a disaster. It had very little adoption, very little pickup, and the information was, you know, spotty at best. Where's this app now? Does anybody know where this fucking app is? I'll tell you where it is. It's in the digital bin. That's where it is. Why? Because they couldn't work it out. They couldn't get it to work. One of the things that they said to us when they launched this app is your data will absolutely 100% remain confidential. It will not be shared. It will not be distributed. It will be anonymous data. You've got nothing to worry about. Well, guess who's handling the track and trace app now? We got a team up. We, we, we got a team up. It's Apple and it's Google. Two of the biggest companies in the world who manifest their profits through the use of data. You think our data in that medical trace and track app is going to be kept anonymous? If you do, go find a brick wall and slam your head against it until you pass out because you're a fucking moron. Does anybody truly believe that their data is going to be safe in any way, shape, or form with any company, digital technology company, app, whatever? Data is gold. Data is the new oil, is what they say. Data is the most powerful commodity in the world. We signed it all away before we knew what it was worth. These companies have all of it. They continue to gather it and use it for whatever they want. You give them all of your payment information, right? All of your listening habits, all of your travel habits, all of your you know, social media habits, all of your search history, all of your bank details and financial records, and now you give them their medical records too? There is not a chance in hell I am signing up to any track and trace app whatsoever. I hope you just have a quick think about that before you go and just sign up to something that is going to, it's not going to help at all. It's not going to help at all. This is a monitoring program. And once you get something taken away from you by the government, like your privacy and your the privacy around your healthcare data, once that is parsed into a private company's network, it's gone. You're never getting that privacy back. And if people think, well, what, what, what can they do with my health data? Your health data is perhaps the most valuable data you have. The signals and the signposts that it creates for you as a person are immense. Think about how it could affect things like, I don't know, you getting a job, you getting a health insurance policy, you uh, qualifying for a loan, you you know want to go purchase your own house, but they understand because they've got your health data and Apple have sold it and made some of that available that you're actually not healthy. So maybe giving you a 30-year mortgage isn't the best investment for us as a financial institution. So what we're going to do is we're only going to be able to give you a 10- or 15-year mortgage. And the rates on those mortgages, well, the interest rate's got to be higher because you're more of a liability. So now you're stuck in a rental scheme. You can't buy a house. You can't get on the property ladder. You can't progress your life. Oh, you want a life insurance policy. Cool. Well, the, the data that we got from Google back in 2020 says that um, actually you were a smoker back then. Are you still a smoker now? Oh, it doesn't actually matter because the premium on your health insurance now is going to be 10 times what it would have been without that. 
we start giving our data away like we have been for the last 10, 15 years, everything's eroded. Everything is eroded. And it's, you know, it's these people that, the people that piss me off the most are the ones that say, well, I've got nothing to hide, so I don't care what they look at. That is a fundamental misunderstanding about what civil rights is. Okay? Give me one example of when a government took away freedom in some respect of yours, right? Imposed a restriction so you couldn't do something and then gave it back to you. Just give me one example because I can't think of one because the people in power want it in total without question and they want to retain it without an end date on returning it. They want it indefinitely. They want it in perpetuity. And people are just like, oh yeah, track and trace, that makes sense. Oh, track and trace, that makes sense. How does it make sense? It's only as good as the data connects it. And if the data in that system isn't very good, then the process of, the purpose of that tool is not going to be very good. It just stands to reason. So you will not find me signing up to any track and trace app because every single point along this journey of COVID has been nothing but lies, misinformation, incorrect decisions. So why would I put my trust in a government that can't even build an app and then hands it over to the two most powerful corporations in the world that make all of their money from user data. I mean, if you've got stupid written on your head in bold text, then fine. But that's not my vibe. That's not my vibe. Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, and the rest of the government, I mean, it's just... I don't want to keep going on about it because it comes off quite negative, but I'm pissed off about how the situation's gone. And I've been wanting to talk about this for a couple of weeks, but as I said, we've had guests on and that's kind of where we want the show to go. So I don't do as many of these one-to-one, you know, kind of microphone conversations as we were before, but just to kind of close all of this out, like Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, Dominic Robb, and the rest of this government have completely dropped the ball every single time they've had a chance to be leaders proactive leaders that step up and actually do something constructive for us which is why they were elected in the first place but instead they contract covid through arrogance they're sloppy with their guidance and now they don't want to relinquish any power that they've taken away so they perpetuate nonsense about this virus when it's plain to see that if you're not sick and are mindful of your hygiene And don't mistreat your body. The chances are that if you get this, you'll barely notice. But that doesn't mean we don't need precaution. That doesn't mean we don't need to be sensible. As I said, the hygiene is massive. The health is massive. But take it upon yourself to make the best decision for you and your family. And if you think the best decision for you and your family is by going to the pub where hundreds of thousands of people are, the day they allow you to open it back up, when these numbers are not going down the way they tell us they're going down, then you're going to reap what you sow. 
and I hope that the people in earshot of me are smarter than that, will take a bit more consideration than that. And if you happen to be an anti-vaxxer, someone who doesn't believe in vaccines, just wait. I'm not going to be the first one in line for this vaccine. I'm going to let it go through a few rounds and let people get injected with it, see how bad it is, because if they rush a vaccine through, that's going to be more dangerous than COVID. But when one is safe, I may go get that. It's the only way we eradicate this thing, but I don't even think they're going to find one because what I think is actually going on here is what we're doing and what we're seeing is the ascension of a new flu, right? So they say, well, oh, that that was one of the stories in the beginning, right? Well, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be that bad because like 50,000 people a year die of the flu anyways. Like that's a good thing, right? Well, now a few hundred thousand people die of the flu. So is this the new normal? People keep saying, oh, well, we're stepping into a world with a new normal. Is that the new normal where we can expect the flu now to kill off hundreds of thousands of people around the world every single year? Factors higher than, say, what normal influenza was? Because, by the way, that hasn't gone anywhere. And what they're saying is the potential of this virus to mutate and strengthen is likely. So what do we do about that? I'm ready to get back to quote-unquote normal just like everybody else is. But it's got to be done smart. And you've got to ask yourself a question. How much do I need to be in a pub drinking pints? How much do I need to be in a, uh, like a clothing store? How much do I need? But then that leads us down the road of talking about Amazon and why they've made so much goddamn money during this pandemic. And we definitely don't want to keep propping that king up on a higher throne and a bigger throne. So it is a tough one. I get that. But the main crux of all of this is the simple fact that we didn't act accordingly at the very beginning has led us down this road, which is just being paved in shit. Our economy is in the toilet. The global economy is in the toilet. Companies, the furlough scheme is going to end. Do you think that they're going to give us another furlough scheme if this virus re-emerges with the ferocity that it had in March? No, you're on your own. And that's why I say the financial trouble that we're in now is nothing if this thing resurges because the government will not have the funds to bail us out again because they know how much damage this is going to do to the economy long term already there's no way they're going to do it again they can't we won't stand for it i hope and we'll realize that it's us that are fronting this bill and we're the ones that are going to have to be paying it back But if they take all of the payment protection, the wage protection schemes away, the furlough scheme, etc., and this thing reemerges with any level of ferocity that it had before, you're going to see massive, massive layoffs. You're going to see millions of people losing their job, businesses going under, the economy collapsing to a point where it won't rebound for a long, long time. And I hope that's not the case. I hope we can keep our collective heads, be a little bit more sensible, 
but I have very little faith in most people. And that's not born out of cynicism. That's born out of reality and watching actions. As soon as you can go outside, a million people go to the park, sit right on top of each other. As soon as you can open the pub, people get straight back out, go sit on top of each other. I understand you want to get back to normal, but normal looks a lot different if you've got a tube down your fucking throat. You have scar tissue on your lungs. You lose your sense of taste. How good's a pint going to taste if you can't fucking smell it or taste it? How good's that curry you've been going out for going to taste when you lose all the sense of taste that you had in the first place? It's short-term versus long-term. It's short-term planning versus long-term consequences. And I haven't seen one iota of sensible decision-making from this government except for the payment, the wage protection scheme, which was more than probably any other country has done, I believe. That's the only positive I point to during this whole thing, other than the fact that it's allowed me to rediscover some things that I really love. I've been able to spend a ton of time with my family, with my wife, with my animals, although I'm sure both of them are getting very, very sick of me and probably want me back in the office and out of the house because I sit at my desk all day tapping away at the keyboard and, you know, just got to hide out somewhere else. But I want to get back to normal like everybody else does. But it has to be done with some level of intelligence, some scientific data, and some scientific consensus and stop humming and hawing. And if you don't know, say so. It's not a knock on your ego. Nobody's going to shit on you for saying, I don't know the answer to that but I'm definitely going to look into it. But when you make wild claims of certainty with confidence that abounds and it turns out to be wrong and you don't know why, then you look like a dickhead and nobody trusts you because you've lost all of your credibility. But that's enough about COVID. The other thing that I wanted to talk about (laughs) was Kanye West running for president, which will lead me on to my next point. So Kanye released a tweet a few days ago saying, you know, I've now realized now, you know, we're in the time where we have to put our trust in God and some shit. I'm running for president 2020, Kanye, right? Elon Musk comes out straight away. He's like, you have my... You have my absolute full support in this. So whether they're trolling us or not, I don't know. All I know is about two days later, Elon Musk tweeted out uh, in regards, like basically in my in regards to the support that I lent uh, Kanye the other day. It seems like we have more uh, m- more things that we're not aligned with than things that we are aligned with. Um, he basically said, this guy's crazy. I'm not going to support him. It was a mistake, Is if you read between the lines. And that coming from a guy who is probably one of the smartest men on earth, but also one of the strangest men on earth because he named his child a serial number, you know, it kind of puts in perspective where we are. And some would say we're living in a fucking simulation because how can a reality TV star, a rap star, and you know, a, a genius entrepreneur like Elon Musk be, be the top tier of what we got as talent. 
It just it boggles the mind. Imagine having Kim Kardashian as first lady. I mean, I don't know if that's a step worse or a step better than the idiot we've got in there it, that they America have in there now and his first lady, who's basically a mail order bride. You got a reality TV star and his mail order bride as the as the leading family of America. And you've got the poor man's version running our country, Boris Johnson. I mean, this idiot can't even comb his hair. Oh, I'm going around. I'm going around the COVID ward. Everything's good. Fucking two weeks later, oh, I'm dying. I mean, this is the best talent we've got to run our countries. It's insane to me. It's absolutely insane to me. So anybody that thinks Kanye West for president is a good idea should follow the people I gave the advice to to find a brick wall earlier. Which leads me to my point about Unity 2020 that I wanted to just make quickly because I think it's really fascinating and really interesting. And if you don't know what Unity 2020 is, it's a proposal put forth by, uh, by Brett Weinstein and... I'll give you the I'll give you the the quick summary of it. Effectively, what he wants to do is he wants to make the presidential, uh, the way we elect presidents and vice presidents, completely different. We elect from uh, a, cr- a criteria of three things. I think I believe it's uh, like good moral character, uh, experience, and they can't be uh, on like the extremes of a political spectrum. And what you do is you have one of them as a Democrat, one of them as a Republican, both centrists in their ideology. The person that's elected president runs the country for four years. After that, the president and the vice president switch positions and you run it for another four years until both of them have had two terms, which is, again, two-term limit for a president remains, but it would be a rotational basis. So you have four years of a Republican, four years of a Democrat, four years of a Republican, four years of a Democrat, and then you reelect someone else in the same fashion. And it's actually getting quite a bit of traction because it gives equal share of the governance to both of the major political parties. He suggested a couple of candidates, one being an admiral and the other being Andrew Yang, Admiral McRaven and Andrew Yang, which sounds like a great idea. Um, I just don't know if those are the two candidates for it. And I can't give you two candidates that I think are better for it, but there's just some issues around it that I won't go into now. Um, but I, in theory, I really like the proposal because it, it almost balances out the power that would stop some of the divisive politics that happen you know, on a daily basis that's perpetuated by all of the media outlets. So if you're interested in that, go and have a look at it because it's, uh, it's, quite, a, it's quite a new proposal. It's quite a radical proposal. But coming from Eric, um, and if you don't know who Eric Weinstein is, I suggest you go and have a look at him. Uh, he rose to sort of, he kind of rose out of anonymity because he was a professor at Evergreen State College, um, which was a very progressive college that went haywire and there was an incident where he was asked 
by the student body or a part of the student body not to attend and be on the campus on a specific day because they were trying to make that a day just for minorities, right? So they wanted an inclusive day of just minorities, black people and, and you know, and, and other kind of minority groups that exist within the states, but no white people. And the simple fact that these idiots didn't understand that that was exactly the discrimination that they were trying to fight against and they were imposing, he refused. It caused a riot. They attacked him, and he had to actually go into hiding. This is my problem with the progressive, woke, super woke left, is that they don't understand that their actions are precisely the actions they are fighting against but are perpetuating. Break it down for you. They claim to be anti-fascists, but when you control who can and cannot be involved in the discourse or the dialogue or the debate or the attendance, you are enacting fascist segregational tactics against the people that you should be trying to have a dialogue with. I hope I've explained that correctly. Or in a way that you can, that makes it clear. But it's a snake eating its own tail. Because as the progressive, super woke progressive left continues to push the boat out left, right? And nobody's, nobody's progressive enough. Nobody's inclusive enough. Right? It's the Black Lives Matter thing. If you are silent, if you are not actively saying something against the tyranny that has been going on against black people, you are therefore a racist. This is bullshit. And if you have a look at the Black Lives Matter organization, not the movement, the Black Lives Matter organization, you will see some pretty uncomfortable things at the top of that organization. If you don't know what Marxism is, go and have a look into that. Again, communism in theory sounds like a great thing. In practice, it causes starvation, poverty, and death for everybody that's not at the top. Because anybody that engineers a political structure will engineer it in their favor. If you want to tear down structures, it is those that rebuild it that rebuild it in their image and in their favor. So the woke progressive super woke left of these fucking idiot white people who are saying, you know, Black Lives Matter and tear the whole system down and everything like that. Let's rebuild it from the ground up. Who do you think is going to rebuild it? Whether it be black and ethnic minorities or it be the conglomerations that already run the world. Like, do you think that this Black Lives Matter movement is going to tear down Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, fucking all of these massive corporations? So tear it down and see who rebuilds it and see if it's any better for you. Because we're already walking ourselves into a digital dictatorship. The fact that we're thinking about tearing down institutions rather than reforming them in a thoughtful way will only lead to a greater divide and chasms for the population which are suffering the most at the moment. It's a... It's a plan written by a child on the back of a coloring book, and it makes no sense. It's short-sighted, and these fucking idiots that are screaming out there, these Antifa idiots or these just super progressive woke, you can't call me this, I got 17 fucking pronouns you need to, you know, adhere to. 
They don't understand what they're talking about. You want to start erasing history? How much of it? You want a quality of outcome? For who? These are very, very simple questions. Do we want to go back to ancient Egypt to talk about slavery? Do we want to go all the way back there? Because you're erasing your own history if you go that far back. So do we just go back to the colonial times where it was the white people that were doing the slave owning? Because even if you want to look at an America's slavery problem, what you're going to find out if you dig a little bit deeper is that there were actually a lot of black slave owners. Do we want to just do we do we do we want to go down that road? How comprehensive do you want to have this discussion be? Because history undoubtedly is an ugly thing. Comparative with the times that we live in now, any point in history will seem like barbarianism. You can't compare the 1960s to 2020. You can't even compare January to July. But people think they got it figured out by tearing these statues down and painting, you know, the gay flags on the walkway and Black Lives Matters down the road. Like this is going to create institutional change. It's so short-sighted because people who want to erase history will have no concept of it. And if you don't know where you've been, you have no idea where you're going. That's history. If you don't know history, it's doomed and inevitable that it will repeat itself. So again, how far back do we want to go with that story of erasing history? Because it gets to be a very, very slippery slope. And you might just implicate some people you thought were immune from criticism in topics like slavery. And that's not a justification for anything. But what I'm saying of anything in terms of, you know, the marginalization and the subjugation that minorities have had through the years, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying have a pragmatic viewpoint on the arguments that you're trying to make. And if you don't know, it's your job to go and study and learn about these things, right? I always used to say when I was on my sort of atheist kick, the burden of proof is not for me to prove that God is not real. The burden of proof is on you that say he is to prove it. I don't think he exists, so I don't need to prove that he does. You do, so you do. The onus is on you. Simply, like this conversation, if you want to erase history, how much of it do you know and how far back do you want to go when we're talking about getting rid of it? I mentioned this on my Black Lives Matter episode. You know, they're now taking down the Cecil Rhodes statue and kind of dissolving that memory. Well, the Rhodes Scholarship is still a thing. And it benefits black, white, whoever's smart enough. It's based on a meritocracy of intelligence. But unfortunately, we lack this common sense and this ability to have nuanced discussions with each other and with people who might be on an opposite end viewpoint than we find ourselves in that moment. And that's dangerous. Because if you can't communicate, you can't resolve anything. And if you just look at the face value of things, like, oh, let's get rid of that statue and then pretend like that part of history didn't exist, isn't that the most superficial resolution that you could think of in dealing with a problem that's this severe? 
It is for me. So I'm getting a little frustrated with the Black Lives Matter organization. Not the Black Lives Matter protests. I think the protests are fantastic. I think a lot of the protests are directed with purpose. And those are going to be the ones that make the change. It's not going to be these super wokes that are trying to (coughs) tear down statues. And you get these news outlets that are saying, oh, well, you know, we need to rename Washington, D.C. because, you know, George Washington was a slave owner. This is coming from the Washington Post. Do we see this? But we don't pay attention to things like that because we have an attention span that's 12 seconds long. We can't get into anything deeper than that. We're definitely not going to read past the second paragraph of a news article. We're definitely not going to watch any informative videos that are more than three minutes long. So what do we expect? We'll keep going down this road. But it's a sad state of affairs when we can't converse with each other on topics that may be a little bit difficult and a little bit uncomfortable. And what's happening right now is white people are being marginalized because you are either vocally on board with this or you are part of the problem. And again, what nuance does that allow? I feel that this is the only platform where I can even talk about this stuff. Because if I bring this up with anybody that I work with or, you know, anybody else, not only do they not want to have the conversation, but they look at you like a bit cockeyed. Like, what's 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 he all about? Is he really not supporting this movement like the rest of us are? And I just think it's crazy. So maybe we didn't have the funnest, most positive episode, but I wanted to get some shit off my chest and just talk a little bit about some of the things that have been going on in the past few weeks, months, what have you. And I'm glad we got to because I haven't, again, I haven't been able to kind of put this on on tape, as it were. And I think some of this stuff needs to be said. So if you've got any feedbacks or comments, then of course I'd love to hear from you. Um, we're going to be back next week. We're going to do uh, we've got another guest coming on next week. I've got some really cool guests lined up that I'm just working out the final details with. But if they come on, it's gonna be it's gonna be completely different than anything we've done before. And 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 the folks on there are gonna be uh, what I'm doing is I'm digging into my interests more and trying to bring you the things that I'm interested in. And hopefully you guys will be too. So stay tuned for that. But if you're a first time listener, you can check us out on all platforms. I don't know what you would have found this on. Probably Spotify or um, or iTunes. Uh, but we're also on SoundCloud. We're also on things like uh, Google Podcasts and CastBox and Podchaser and all that stuff. And we usually have all the links um, that we send out with the episodes. But saving all that, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Quiet Part Loud. Um, so check us out there. We also have a Facebook page where we post. Um, and if you're business-minded, we're on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, full coverage and all that. But um I had fun doing this, even though it wasn't the most bubbly, <coughs> the bubbly content and the happy-go-lucky content. You need to talk about these things. Um, so I hope there's some value in that for you. Um, so we'll wrap it up, and that's it. But uh, check us out on those platforms. Stay tuned for next week when we come back with some guests. Um, any scheduling issues, and it'll just be me again, but we should be good to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a wrap. So thanks for listening, guys. Um, Until next time, all the best.